Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Irish Sport and Exercise Science Association podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Wardrop, and today I'm honoured to have the opportunity to speak with Giles Warrington, who has recently delivered his inaugural professorial lecture at the University of Limerick. So, Professor Giles Warrington, you are very welcome to the podcast. Hi, Bruce. Great to see you. Do you know, I was actually quite nervous. That was hard to say. Inaugural professorial lecture. I, would, I was Once I have that over the way with me, I think the rest of this is going to be easy. You should try giving the lecture. <laughs> <laughs> Giles, we've loads to talk about, but I was thinking we might just go back to the start or to the early part of your career. Um, I don't know if you recall this, but our paths first crossed back in Limerick in the National Coaching and Training Centre uh, when I got some testing experience with you and Caroline McManus working with the Irish rowers. I don't want to age either of us too much, but I think I actually secured that placement with a written letter that I sent to, to, to Limerick. Uh, so uh, there was email, definitely email at the time, but it wasn't easy to find out what someone's email was. So that's how our paths first crossed. Um, how did you end up at the NCTC in Limerick? Uh, what were you doing up to there and, and around that time? Well, it's a great story, and it's a kind of a convoluted one as well. So uh, I actually started off in banking, believe it or not. My my father was in international finance, and it seemed a logical way to go. So I worked at NatWest Bank um, uh, on an accelerated management scheme uh, for three years. As soon as I got in the door, I realized they absolutely hated it with a passion. And I thought to myself, God, this, this isn't going to work. And so what it did, it galvanized me to think about what is it I wanted to do. And I suppose I kept coming back to, well, what are my passions? What am I passionate about? And the word sport kept coming on, onto the piece of paper. And so I thought, well, what can I do in sport? Are there careers in sport? And as I researched more, I came across this thing called sport science. And I didn't really know what it was about. So I kind of investigated a bit more. I thought, you know, this sounds really interesting. Now, remembering I, I, I grew up in the UK and I did no science O-levels or A-levels. So I had no science background whatsoever. So I thought, Sounds interesting. So um, I applied as a mature student to a number of universities and eventually went to St. Mary's uh, University College, Drawby Hill. And once I arrived there and I was learning science through the medium of sport, it just blew my mind. It just encapsulated me. And I realized, you know, if you're if you're learning something in a medium that you're passionate about, it's very easy the learning. Um, and so long story short, I, I, I become a, a, an exercise physiologist, sport and exercise physiologist. And at the time when I was graduating, I really didn't know what I was going to do. And uh, again, purely by chance, my next door neighbor, who's an old friend of mine at college, said, did you see there was an advert uh, for a position as an exercise physiologist at the British Olympic Medical Center working with Olympic athletes? I, I didn't see it. So I, I grabbed the article and the deadline was the following day. So I, I rushed the CV together. I threw it in, didn't think much about it, was called for interview, and I was offered the job to my, very much to my surprise. And um, I remember at the time, Professor Craig Sharp, who was the director of the centre, who became my, my, my great mentor, I asked him afterwards, you know, why did I get the position? And he said, well, everybody we interviewed had a sports science degree, but you had a, a lot of extracurricular uh, qualifications, coaching qualifications. You volunteered to get involved in a lot of things. So what I say to a lot of students now is whatever you do, get involved in as many things as you possibly can, because the, the more you do, the more you'll stand out. So, so that was the, the the story there. I was going to stay for a year, and then I was going to go to Loughborough University to do my masters. Um, so while I was there, Craig said to me, "Would you be interested in doing a PhD with us, uh, working with the British rowing team?" And you know, the, the highly successful team. And I thought this is too good an opportunity to miss. So I said, "Yeah, I'll stay on." So um, I was very fortunate to work with the rowing team. The work was all around altitude training. So we were training in the Austri Austrian Alps in a place called Silveretta. Um, so working with some of the greats of British rowing, uh, the likes of Stephen Redgrave, James Cracknell, Matthew Pinsett. So really fortunate to be able to work with these incredible people. That golden um, yeah, era. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then uh, a job came up in Limerick, of all places. And it just looked really interesting and something, something slightly different. So again, I thought, you know, Let's have a look at this. So it was at the National Coaching Training Centre where you and I first met um, as a role as head of player athlete services. So it was very, very much um, coordinating and delivering the sports science support services. So I got that job thinking I'd maybe come for a couple of years. And 31 years later, I, I, I'm still in Ireland. And by pure coincidence, um, Craig Sharp, my mentor, uh, was the inaugural professor of sport and exercise science in the University of Limerick. 
So he he arrived just before I did. Now, it was pure coincidence we were coming to the same place. So our, our, our journeys are intertwined over the career. So that, that was my kind of entry point into Ireland. And at that time, I, I, do you know what? I had a different question in mind, but we'll, we'll talk about Craig maybe. I, I know you you think uh, mentors, you, very important to have mentors in, in a person's career. So Craig obviously stands out as one. How has he mentored you during your career? And is there anyone else that, that's fit the bill as well? Yeah, great question. I, I think the power of mentoring can't be understated. Being a mentor and, and receiving mentorship. So I'm always looking for mentors and always you know mentoring people. Um, so Craig would have been my first mentor. Um, sadly, he's passed away now. But, you know, he, he was my guide. He was my sounding board. He helped uh, support me in driving my career decisions. He was also my PhD supervisor or one of them. Um, so he had a, a very, very important role to play. And then when I moved to the National Coaching Training Center, the director, Professor Pat Duffy, who, again, sadly, is no longer with us, who was and many people would know him in our Irish sport. You know, he was a real visionary, both uh, nationally and internationally. So he was director of the National Coaching Training Centre. He, he was a key driver in international coaching through ICE, the association. Um, he, he then moved to the UK uh, and led their, their major sport body there in terms of coaching and then became a professor in Leeds uh, Carnegie. And um, sorry, Leeds Beckett. And um, Pat was a, an incredible visionary, uh, an incredible support to me, but he became an incredible friend. And the nice thing as well, my mentors all became close friends of mine. And then the, the last kind of three of the pillar, I call them the, the three professors, is Liam Moggan, who a lot of people know. Dr. Liam Moggan, I should call him. He was given an honorary doctorate uh, by the University of Limerick last year for his services to sport and coaching. I, I call him the professor because he's the fountain of knowledge. Um, and Le Liam, to this day, is a very dear friend of mine. I probably speak to him twice a week, at least on the phone, incredible sounding board. And I, I embarrassed him at my lecture by saying, you know, if, if I had um, got a, a euro for every time I repeated one of his pearls of wisdom, I would be an incredibly wealthy man at this stage. Um, that, that, that's, it's really nice to hear you speak so passionately about, passionately about the, the three professors there. Um, they were people who obviously helped you, guided you, supervisors and became friends. Is that something that you try to emulate now when you, if you're being a mentor to someone? Uh, how, how do you see your role as a mentor? Very much so. And I think it depends on the stage of the journey. I think you need to build the relationships to come to friendship. But certainly, you know, uh, I, I would always uh, be very happy and very supportive to be a mentor to anybody. And, you know, I, I, I've been fortunate to work with some incredible people. You know, I, I've had some incredibly uh, fantastic PhD students who, you know, I would be in contact with all of them to this day um colleagues as well um the, it, what was lovely for me is the the, the provost of ul has set up a, a mentoring program within the university um and has asked me to be the champion for our faculty of that and, I, and i'm a very strong advocate and i think it comes to my coaching background as well you know i think mentoring and coaching are very much intertwined you know when you when you you, you, you talk about um coaching you're you're facilitating somebody a person to achieve their maximum potential so when you coach, you don't coach uh, a GA coach, you coach a person who happens to play or coach GAA. And it's very much about the person. So I think, you know, the, the roles of mentoring and coaching are very much intertwined. They're certainly passions of mine. And certainly I, I would always seize opportunities to, to support a mentor, but also to receive mentorship. And you know, I'd have great friends and colleagues who would still mentor me to this day. Yeah, I, I get the sense from you there that the, the, the people you'd consider mentors have been somewhat uh, consistent presences in your career. Um, but perhaps do you see a, a role for mentors in a more transient capacity as well, maybe on a project or uh, um, uh, at a games or something like that, that you might have a more short term mentor? Most definitely, most definitely. And, and I would have done that as well, mentoring colleagues in other universities, for example, who are looking at their promotion pathways. So I think sometimes it can be longer term, but also it can be, as you rightly say, short term and transitory. It depends on the situation and the relationship. And I think that needs to build anyway. It does. And yeah, I think it, it's it's often something that you can reach out and ask for, ask a simple question for help. And then that can blossom into something uh, a bit more from there. And it's important not to be afraid to reach out and ask for that help in the first place. 100%. I think that's half the thing is to reach out and look for that. And it's very much evolutionary. It's evolving the whole relationship. 
Okay, on the, the, the topic of evolution, let's pivot back to your the early part of your career there. I was going to, to move into a question about your, your practical and applied work. Your time at the NCT would have been uh, more practical and applied as opposed to academic. Um, I, I noticed that you, you went off to the Rugby World Cup in 95 and the Atlanta Olympics in 96, and that started a, a procession of, of your involvement in some fairly major competitions. Uh, do any of them stand out as your favourite major competition? Um, well, there's a, there's a lot of them. I suppose the the Rugby World Cup was special. Um, so I was working at National Coaching and Training Centre, and Noel Murphy was the chairman of the board. He was also the manager of the rugby team. Um, and at that time, there wasn't really strength conditioning by term was very much in its early stages. You know, rugby was still very much an amateur sport. It was just on the cusp of professionalism. So he asked me to get involved. So I was very much doing it as a, a on a part time basis. Um, we had players all over the provinces. We had players based in the UK. Um, so if you think now, you know, provincial teams have a number of strength conditioning coaches. So it was certainly an interesting exercise. And um, just to give you an example of, of how amateur in some ways the approaches were, we, altitude, altitude was a key part. Obviously, we were playing at the World Cup and some of our early games were at altitude. We did our altitude training in Kilkenny. So, um, <laughs> so that's where we stood, you know, and, um, you know, getting to work with some great players, for example, Keith Wood, he was at my inaugural lecture. I've known Woody for a long time, you know, being part of that, working with him at that World Cup was very special. And, you know, obviously Woody went to South Africa two years later as part of the iconic uh, Lions team that won the series in, in South Africa. So that, that was special. Um, and then obviously the Olympic Games, I've been very fortunate to be part of six Olympic Games Initially, just working with athletes through the National Coaching Training Centre, so in Atlanta and Sydney, um, and uh, attending those games and providing sports science support to them. Um, and then um, from Athens onwards, so Athens, Beijing, London, Rio, uh, actually being formal part of the medical teams for the Olympic Council of Ireland, as it was at the time, uh, and working. And very much a lot of my work was not only supporting athletes, but designing and implementing the preparation strategies so if you think of um uh going to australia obviously travel fatigue jet lag you know time zone changes was a big part and that's really where a lot of my interest in my later work in research on sleepers came about so all of the games were very unique and special in different ways but i suppose if you were to ask me which was the most memorable um i'd have to say it would be london Primarily because it, it was one that my daughters, Amy and Shona, were able to share with me. And normally, as you know, you've been involved in, in games work, Olympic, Paralympic. Um, when you're there, you don't really get to see much because you're working. Um, but that was one. It's not was, a party. Yeah, that was when I was determined to get some time. So they came over and, you know, we, we got to, to, to go some event, to, to some events together. They saw one of Katie Taylor's medal fights and met Katie Taylor as well. So that, it was lovely just to be able to share that with her. Um, my, my roles changed as well a little bit, this evolution you talked about. So for, for London, um, really, there was not huge potential preparation challenges. There were some, but clearly the role wouldn't have been the same as Beijing, where they were very significant. So I kind of felt I was going to be a tourist and just not go as part of the team and just enjoy the experience. But uh, colleagues in the Olympic Council said, look, we need somebody to run the training camp. Um, is this something that you'd be interested in taking on? So I, I set up the training camp pre-games and brought all the people to work with me. Uh, and it was it was a great experience. It, it seemed to work very well based on the feedback from the athletes. So that, that was a great thing. And then they asked me to do the same in Rio, which was a whole different ballgame because, you know, you're across the other side of the world, different language, huge country, not knowing where we were going to be, where we we're going to go. So I had to do a lot of desktop research and a lot of trips over to the area to find where the training camp would be. So it was nice to have a, a different role as well, to not only be a sports scientist as part of the team, but also managing the, the preparation camps. So that was something a bit different, but very, very great fun as well. So that, that leads nicely into one of my other questions then. So how has the, the, the service provision model changed as you've moved from one cycle to another? You know, initially was it a physiologist doing physiology and a strength and conditioner doing physiology, doing strength and conditioning towards later games, how the service providers interacted with each other and with the with the athletes and, and, and did what they had to do? Yeah, I think great, great question, Bruce. Um, I think, you know, traditionally it's been multidisciplinary where people are tending to work in isolation to a certain degree. And in a lot of situations, you know, the challenge of the games accreditation, you know, athletes are working with service providers, but 
at the time of the games, they're probably not going to be working with the same people. So you're really having to look at that kind of transition and managing it. And I think what sports and exercise sciences has done, not only at Olympics, Paralympics, but a, a lot of competitions, is that we've moved very much from a multidisciplinary model, which is kind of siloed thinking, to what I would call a transdisciplinary model, where we're working together as a unit. It's much more innovative, problem-solving, and kind of a, a lot more effective communication taking place. So it's looking at that more holistic approach rather than, you know, when we look at multidiscipline, we tend to think of individual disciplines and how they work. So I think the, the approaches have taken uh, a change. But also, if you look at now the, the, the number of graduates coming out of sports science programs, you know, going back to 93, I think, when um, the first sport and exercise science course started in UL, um, that was one. We now have a large range of courses doing a variety of different kinds of programs. So we have a lot of high quality graduates coming through. So, you know, the, the pool of quality service providers has, has grown tremendously. I think that's fantastic. So, I, yeah, I agree. And I think um, there's an opportunity for, for, for us in Ireland and, and maybe abroad, but to capitalize on the quality of the people that are coming through. And I've noted in recent years or maybe, maybe over the last five to 10 years, there has been a real increase in the number of postgraduate opportunities that have integrated service provision with an academic research project. So can you tell us about your involvement in some of those projects or how they came about in the first place? Yeah, so I, I suppose a good one example for me would be kind of towards the end of my time at the National Coaching Training Centre, um, I got a phone call from Dr. Adrian McGoldrick, who's the, he was the, he's retired now, Chief Medical Officer of the Turf Club, uh, the Irish Horse Racing Regulatory Board. Um, and he, he rang me about a, a well-known jockey who I can give them the name because he's uh, broadcast this on the media himself and told the story, Johnny Murter. And Johnny at the time was having difficulties making weight. He was coming probably towards the end of his career. You know, the, the weight standards horse racing are incredibly low. Um, you think the average kind of 13-year-old schoolboy probably couldn't make the minimum weights for a flat jockey. Um, and um, would I meet him? So Johnny came down, and I think the idea was that he was going to come down and run a few physiological tests, and Bob's your uncle, the magic wand will be waved. But I wanted to get under the bonnet. So we sat down, and we had a long conversation, and I asked him to just talk me through his life, his lifestyle, his daily routine. And I suppose the more he told me, the more my jaw tended to hit the floor. And, you know, it was, you know, the getting up early, riding out horses, having to go to races, having to abstain from fluid intake, nutritional intake for long periods of time. And, and this was shocking. So I remember asking him one question. I said, uh, so when do you hydrate? And he said, uh, let me see, uh, somewhere around October. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, so from, from that, um, there was a couple of fatalities in the horse racing industry. Um, so the Turf Club set up um, a health and safety committee. To, to, to look at some of the standards and procedures. And one of the recommendations, the standard one, is we need to do some research. So um, we at the NCTC were uh, commissioned to do some research. We looked at profiling, physiological profiling jockeys, to look at the impact of weight regulation. And we had some startling data in terms of poor bone health, high levels of osteopenia, which is the precursor to osteoporosis. And you think it's a high risk, highly dangerous sport. So if you're falling off horses, and your, your, your bone health isn't optimal, that's probably not a good recipe. Very high levels of dehydration, but also really high levels of injury. And if you think of horse racing, it's the only sport in the world where the, the races are followed by two ambulances on the inside as they're going around. It's a high-risk sport. So anyway, the long and the short of it was from, from that initial study that was published in uh, 2009, we persuaded the Turf Club to um, uh, fund a PhD student, Ema Dolan, who was the first and that was really the start of it. Once we had one in, uh, it's really grown and expanded. And uh, at this stage, Sarah Jane Cullen, an old colleague of yours and uh, a good friend of mine as well, did, did her undergraduate with me at DCU, uh, where I worked for 10 years. She then stayed on to do a PhD with the jockey research, then did a postdoc, um, then went on to Waterford and is now just back in DCU. But she's now a key driver within the jockey research program. So, you know, we, we've had a lot of outputs. We've, I think we've... Uh, uh, five PhD students and master student gone through. We now have another five. We've published uh, 30 peer-reviewed journals um, and the funding is, uh, is about 1.4 million. But I think the critical thing is impact. So based on our research, um, the minimum standards for, for flat jockeys, the riding weights that is, um, for the first time in, in a century have increased by on two occasions. So based on the hard scientific evidence, we can show that the weight standards were inappropriate. And there was a risk, a 
associated with the jockey. So the, those minimum weight standards have increased. We uh, have established a jockey pathway. So looking at the technical, tactical, mental, physical aspects throughout a jockey's career, and then aligning sports science and medical support services alongside them. So jockeys were athletes, but unlike, say, athletes through um, the Institute and the carding scheme, they weren't getting access to any support services bar medical. So we put them in place, but also a, an education program as well. So a number of colleagues working within that. And it's making sure that, you know, that the practices that they, they adopt to, to regulate their weight, control of the weight are, are evidence based and scientific. For example, um, certainly a conversation with jockeys is, you know, how exercise can help regulate energy balance. And a lot of them won't run or in the past they wouldn't run. And I said, why wouldn't you run? And they said, oh, it puts on muscle mass. And I'd say, well, have you ever seen a Kenyan runner at the Olympics? They're not muscly. Um, so, and again, you know, certain certain muscle mass might, might help promote um, energy expenditure anyway. So there was a lot of disinformation and the facts were very much historical and passed down from year to year. So what we've done now is adopted a much evidence-based scientific approach to preparation of the jockeys, to support of the jockeys based on the research we've done. So that's been a, a long-going, ongoing program, which started purely from a random phone call uh, when I was at the NTTC. Yeah, I don't mean to be facetious, but like it was one athlete complaining and now it has bloomed or blossomed into into this huge project that, that, that's been very beneficial to all the other jockeys involved. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I'd be totally honest with you, Bruce. You know, I've had a lot of luck in my career. You know, but, you know, I think you, you seize the opportunities. I think Sanaka said luck is when uh, preparation meets opportunity. So, you know, you, you have to ride your luck and take those opportunities. So, yeah, I have been fortunate and very lucky. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think I've had a certain amount of luck. I think some of it comes back to that time that I, I put in down at the NCTC with you because that's, I, again, I tell my own students that, you know, I volunteered and I ch- ch- chased that down until, until I got it. But you know, that put me in front of you and a few other people and I treated it like it was a, a, a very important job. It was very important to me at the time, but that led on to a recommendation for something else, for something else, for something else. And it snowballed into a career for me. So I think it is really, really important that a little bit of a look aligns, uh, but that you're taking advantage of the opportunities. Yeah, but I think, that I think you know, what, what I'd say to you, and you would have stood out the time, um, you know, people who put themselves forwards are volunteering, persevere, and, you know, they're looking to to learn all of it. They're the ones that stand out. And I see them even in UL to this day. You can see the students that stand out, the ones that want to volunteer, go the extra yard, get involved in everything. If there's, you know, even if it's not being paid, you know, you are being paid, it's fantastic. But just getting more experience. And I remember that distinctly with you at those, those great times in the NCT. So there were busy times and, you know, really great work going on there. And having people like you around was tremendous. You know, and I, I've, I've watched your career develop as well over time and that's come from you being prepared to go that extra yard and, and get involved well it's something i try to instill in any of the students that that show an interest i try to let them know that that's how i've done it and that's how others like you have done it in the past so it's the way to go yeah absolutely well we've talked about a lot of successes there i've also heard you say that people need to learn from their disappointments but they need to fail fast what does that mean to you yeah, great question. Um, I, th- I think, you know, if you look at athletic performance, there's so many countless examples of, of athletes who um, have maybe had a major disappointment, but they've learned from that experience, uh, um, uh, adapted their preparation strategies to, uh, to go on and achieve great success. Um, I, I, one example I would give, and again, he, he at the time recounted the story, would have been Darren Sutherland, the boxer, who sadly is no longer with us. Um, I can remember in the preparation time, I would work closely because he was a student at uh, DCU when I was working there. Um, <clears throat> he was preparing for the Beijing Olympics and one of the main qualifiers was the World Championships in Chicago. And I think at the time, he almost thought he could walk off the plane. He was going to win his his uh, category. And Bob's your uncle. He, he got beaten in the early rounds. And, you know, we, we did working with, you know, the, the high performance team, uh, Gary Keegan, Billy Walsh, you know, we, there was a review done in terms of, you know, what went on. And there were clearly things he needed to change, you know, how he managed his weight was a big thing. Um, and so he had a six week period before the final qualifier, the last hurrah, which was in Athens. And um, so, you know, failing fast was a big, big part. You know, what went well? What do we need to improve on? What kind of strategies do we need to put in place? And what was very evident is that going into the Athens, he, his weight was on the button. He was relaxed. It wasn't a stress for him. It meant he could eat. He could just prepare optimally. And long story short, he, he went on to win his, his uh, uh, 
category there. He was voted boxer of the tournament and then went on to Beijing and to win his uh, bronze medal. So that would be one great example. But I think there's countless examples in sport where an underperformance occurs to reflect on it, to review, to refine, adapt your, your strategy, and then go on and, and come better. That kind of what I call the bounce back ability factor. So, I, But I think it's it, you've got to learn, though, from that. You know, you don't just keep doing the same thing over and over again. You look and say, okay, this isn't working. What can we change? What can we tweak? You know, and remember the thing I always think about at the, at the highest level in sport, we're talking about this half of 1%. What I often say to athletes, it's easier to improve five things by half a percent than one thing by two and a half percent. So it's, it's around that attention to detail, you know, at the highest level. I'm just thinking while you're talking there, there's, is there is there a mindset thing there as well with the athletes? So not every athlete is going to instantly want to own a failure and review and and, and plan. So in your role as the, the service provider or whatever role you have with that athlete, it comes back to the mentoring thing again, where you might have to to create that the right culture for the athlete to buy in and own that responsibility, review and and, and grow from it. Yeah, it's a great point. And, and and I think it's that culture, you know, that culture has to be evolving, it can't be forced. And, you know, I, I, again, it's probably a cliche, but it's been very much process rather than outcome orientated. And this, this idea of everyday excellence. So everyday excellence is a, is a, is a mindset and a journey. Um, and, you know, if you focus on those, the success will take care of itself. And I think sometimes possibly athletes, coaches might become too obsessed with the outcome, the actual competition, rather than thinking about the steps along the journey and developing that everyday excellence. Uh, Again, uh, a great Irish athlete, um, Sam Lynch, um, the rower from Limerick, one of the few Irish athletes to retain a world title in the lightweight men's single skulls, so in any sport. And I remember having a chat with him after he retained his world title, talking about success. And I said, um, what do you associate your success? And he said to me, "It, it isn't easy, but it's simple. And I thought, what do you mean by that? And he said, it isn't easy. You have to work bloody hard. You have to sacrifice. You have to put the hours of training in, your preparation. If you put in place the right plan, if you surround yourself with positive people, the right people, the the actual process is very simple. It's a a step process. You need to do the work. But if you put the plan in place, you just have to implement the plan and execute it. And I just thought that was very telling. And that's something that I, I often use to this day. Because, you know, if you want if you want advice, you, you go to an expert and a world champion's an expert in my book. Giles, at some point uh, during your career, you left Limerick and headed for the bright, shiny lights of Dublin City, uh, where you shifted gears into a more of an academic and research role. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that, that's right. So, uh, you know, I, I was thinking about it for some time and it was actually Professor Niall Moyner in, in DCU. I think I was up giving a, a talk um, in DCU and I just had a conversation with him. I think he said to me at the time, have you thought about a career in academia? And um, I said, well, it's something I've been thinking about. And then by chance, an opportunity came up uh, and a a post was advertised in DCU. So I jumped at it and I had uh, 10 fantastic years there in DCU. Um, Very happy there. Um, Great team uh, working up there in the School of Health and Human Performance. Um, And then an opportunity came to, to come back to Limerick, I suppose, is the way I always lived in this area. Uh, in, in North Tipperary, um, even though I was working in Dublin, it was a lot of commuting. Um, so w- when I came back to UL, I, I kind of looked at it as coming home. And so I, 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 I came back as a senior lecturer um, in the uh, Department of Physical Education and Sports Sciences um, in 2015, and then took over as head of department um, in 2017, and just finished my six-year term last week, in fact. Relief. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> know, but again, you know, I, I'm again blessed with a fantastic department, some incredible people, brilliant academics, superb researchers. We have some great programs and really excellent undergraduate, postgraduate students. So, you know, it, it, it was a real pleasure to 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 work in that department, but also to lead it. So it's very easy when you've got the right people around you to 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 to, to lead something like that. So uh, across the time in, in, in those, in, well, in, in your academic posts, did you find that the, the work that you were doing, the research you were doing, did that change uh, your approach as a service provider? Because you were still continuing to work as a service provider at the yeah. same time. Um, did, the, did the academics and, and, and research change what you were doing uh, when you were working with athletes? Yeah, I, I think very much so. I think probably, you know, I took a much more of an evidence-based approach. You know, I, 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 although I'm an academic, I call myself a pra- pracademic. 
practical academic because I'll, I'll always keep that and that was actually the title of my lecture was around that practitioner to pracademic so I think very much so so a lot of my research has very, very much been applied to so the jockey research some of the work we've done on sleep on on um, you know uh, performance monitoring uh, etc has been very much applied so it, it's having those key take-homes and take-home messages so I think very much um, myself as a practitioner improved when I went into academia because I was adopting much more of a scientific evidence-based approach to what I do. Um, so, you know, there, there is evidence-based practice, but sometimes there's a gap. So there is practice-based evidence as well, the experience of what we do. And you, you know that yourself. You know, we learn from our experience, from mistakes we, we've, we've made, well, I've certainly made over my career, and you improve on that. So I, I think it's a bit of both, but I th certainly think that um, moving into academia gave me the time to not only conduct applied research, but actually immerse myself more in, you know, what, what are the current uh, practices and, and trends and patterns coming in the literature? Did it, I think, do you think that's something we do well in Ireland is that we're, we're starting to get our sports science provision, service provision and the academic research side of it more aligned and more aggrained? Is that how you see the future of us going? I think so. And I think, you know, some great initiatives, you know, what this podcast is about, you know, the, the Irish Sport and Exercise Science Association, I think it's a huge step forward so important to have this so i commend all everybody involved in that because you know sports and exercise science has really grown in the country and i mentioned about the number of courses the number of graduates and it's important that we have a professional representative body for that um again i suppose uh, a small plug for some of the work we're doing in ul we we set up the um the sport and human performance research center which is a priority research center in the university for that very reason we felt there was a gap um that nobody was really we didn't have a um, a virtual centre, and that's very much what it is. It's housed in our department in UL, but we have members from around the country and some international. And, I, and the way we look at it is very much an opportunity for people to collaborate, to come together, maybe work together, maybe where they hadn't done before, apply for grants. So it's, it's almost like a think tank, an opportunity to come together. So I think having initiatives like that are very important. And there are others that I could mention, but having those are, are very important because, you know, sports science, sport and exercise has really grown and evolved. And I think it's grown exponentially in Ireland since those kind of initial days in the early 90s. Um, and, you know, and, and I think it's important we have these structures and bodies in place to really um, enhance it further. Yeah, obviously, I agree. I think the, the Irish Sport and Exercise Science Association has a big role to play as we go forward, particularly for, for, for graduates who are coming out of the system now. They've got a representative body. They've got someone who's going to be there. Well, someone who'll be that, a champion for them, you know, advertise opportunities for them. Um, but I'd like to ask, what do you think um, we need from our graduates that are coming out? What, what, what How could the graduates better themselves or better place themselves to take on roles either in practical work or in academic yeah. research or, or combining the two? Yeah, well, I think, you know, those are practical applied skills are very, very important. And, you know, you get those so much on the courses you do, but in volunteering and engaging. Um, and, you know, people always say, what is the future of sports science and sport and exercise science? Then talk about tech and technology. I would also say the soft skills, and it probably goes back to... Um, my role as in terms of coach, coach education, but certainly my engagements with Liam Morgan. So, you know, I can remember we probably bounced off each other in the early days. You know, I saw him this this airy, fairy, woolly kind of coaching person, and I was this kind of hard sports science physiology. You know, never the train will meet. But I think we've morphed into each other. And you know, for me, the soft skills. You know, at the end of the day, you know, plus or minus ten percent graduates are going to know pretty much the same technical information. It's how you impart it. It's how you communicate. It's how you build relationships. Because, you know, a lot of sports science is about problem solving. It's about working as part of a transdisciplinary team. So you need to be able to get on with people. You need to be able to communicate with athletes. You need to be able to work together. So I think probably what needs to be done, um, both in our academic programs, but also the association, I think, that could play a role in this, is thinking about those soft skills as part of that. And I think... One of the things that uh, the association is going to drive, which I think is fantastic, is guidance around career pathways. Um, something that drives me insane is you know, talking to potential students and parents. Oh, there's no jobs in sport and exercise science. It's the biggest load of nonsense ever. There's such a diverse range of roles, both in sport and exercise science. And, you know, if you like yourself, like your career pathway, my career pathway, if you're prepared to get out there and, and grasp it, 
the opportunities are there. If you're going to sit back and say, woe is me, there's nothing here for me, well, that's fine. But you really need to grasp the opportunity. So I think it's fantastic that the Irish Sport and Exercise Science Association is going to look at those kind of career pathways and how to support and, and give guidance. And I think that's a, that's a key part. And I think it's a, a duty of care we have for uh, young graduates coming through in terms of how we support them and guide and give advice around those pathways and, and what might be available. And I think maybe case studies might be a good way of doing that as well, getting people to present, you know, what I did, what I learned, what mistakes I made, you know, what would be my key learnings. There's something I have to report back to Tom as a suggestion now that we, we, we need to, to include. Um, Giles, do you know, I think that we've almost come full, full circle there and I, I think that's a nice place to leave it. Thank you very much for speaking to me today. It's been hugely enjoyable and very informative. And I just want to say on behalf of everyone at the Irish Sport and Exercise Science Association, congratulations, Professor Giles Warrington. Thanks, Bruce. It's great talking to you. I really enjoyed chatting to Giles there. He leads by example and really does embody the tenets he suggests for best practice. Even while talking to him today, you can see how positive he is, eager to celebrate success, clear in his vision and communication, and willing to reflect and learn in the pursuit of continuous improvement. Giles has been a friend and mentor to many during his career, and I thought it would be nice to ask a few people to get in touch and share their thoughts about him. First up, we have the ex-Ireland rugby captain, Keith Wood. I was fortunate at the end of my first year in the Irish setup in 1992-93 to collide with Giles at the start of the NCTC. The science was new, the concepts were new, and it was a huge shock to the system, but the friendship and the professionalism of Giles were of the highest influence on my career. We've been friends ever since, from collaborating on a fartlek signage system for community parks to being my supervisor on my doctorate. It's safe to say his influence hasn't waned. Next, we have Dr. Rod McLaughlin, Medical Director at the IRFU and previously of the Sport Ireland Institute. Um, look, I've known Giles for nearly 30 years now, having worked with him uh, uh, when he was in the NCTC, in DCU, through three Olympic cycles. Uh, we worked together in the Institute of Sport and now he uh, sits as uh, chairs our research committee within the RFU. Um, I've had a long relationship with Giles um, and have sought uh, and valued his advice over those years on numerous occasions. One of my uh, memories of Giles was when we were in Beijing uh, at the Olympics and myself and Martin Burke and Giles went to the markets. Giles was very fixed on that he wanted a watch a certain brand in black it was everywhere in green so having spent a number of hours walking around the market and haggling and buying things myself and martin uh, left giles to continue his manhunt and we said we'd be downstairs ironically enough in a brian's cafe that was within the market as we were sitting down enjoying our relaxing and enjoying our coffee giles uh, came down proud as punch and held out in front of him uh, this watch uh, hanging it you know holding it out in front of him by the strap and with the face facing towards us and away from himself and as he did it he was proud of point saying look lads i got it i found it and he started tapping the face with uh, his finger and as he did that he didn't realize that all the hands had dropped under gravity down pointing towards number the, the number six to which myself and martin just cracked up laughing he suddenly realized what had happened and not to be outdone, he went straight back up and 10 minutes later arrived with a, a better working watch um, in black. I suppose that story, while it was extremely funny at the time, uh, also epitomizes Giles's perseverance uh, and dedication to anything he takes on. And it's something I've seen in him numerous times. While you could also argue that it doesn't support an attention to detail by him, I can secure, assure you he has uh, been very attentive to detail in many things that I've engaged with him. Uh, I wish him well in his new role. It couldn't happen to a nicer guy. I genuinely mean that. I've always valued his thoughts and his opinions. And we, I and the IRFU will continue to seek his expertise and advice for, I hope, many years to come. Dr. Frank Nugent was one of Giles' PhD students and is now an associate professor working alongside Giles in UL. 
My name is Frank Nugent. I'm a lecturer in the PES department in UL. I've known Giles for 13 years now. However, my first memory of Giles is well over 20 years ago. At the time, Giles was writing articles for a newspaper and my mother actually gave me um, one of the articles and it was on sports science, it took a war. You know, it's, it's probably no surprise now when I look back on it um, that, you know, Giles was writing these articles because his interest in sport has always been enormous and particularly in a wide variety of sports. And I think we've really seen that, um, you know, at, at the attendance of his inaugural lecture last week. You know, there were so many people from across Irish sport that Giles had practiced with, that he had taught or that he mentored. I think the uh, teaching and mentorship side of his career has made a, an enormous contribution to Irish sport, particularly the mentorship side, um, because mentorship is often something that's done away from the limelight. It's, um, you know, it's the emails, it's the phone calls, it's the texts, it's the coffees where you're, where you're trying to guide someone and, uh, and help them. And, uh, you know, if I was to kind of s sum up the, the type of character he is, I often think that um, for anyone that's watched Harry Potter, I think um, Albus Dumbledore is a good comparison. Giles is probably um, has a little bit less hair than Albus, but um, I think you know his, his contribution to Irish sport is, can be compared in, in, in that with regards to his teaching, his mentoring, his, his work as a practitioner over the years. I'd just like to, to, to say congratulations to him on his inaugural lecture and, and best wishes with the rest of his career. Professor Sharon Madigan is a long-time friend and colleague of Giles. Sharon left me an eight-minute message about Giles, which you'll be glad to know I was able to trim down a bit. So Bruce asked me, um, would I reflect on any stories or any scenarios that, that kind of comes to mind? And there's one particular one um, that comes to mind, which goes back to the London Olympics. And uh, I'm going to try and avoid bad language, which would have been yours, I might add, and naming any names as well in the in the particular piece. So, Bruce, you might have to get your editing skills going. So um, in London, the Irish camp was based in Lensbury, which is near Teddington and also very close to St Mary's University, which is Giles' alma mater. And one particular day, um, Giles was invited up to uh, some kind of event at St Mary's. I think it was maybe some kind of uh, presentation or something like that. Something very fancy anyway, because he had to get all dolled up for it. So Giles said, Sharon, um, I need you to take the keys off everywhere and you need to just make sure that everything's locked down effectively. And we, because we were very close in terms of London, we'd brought a significant amount of kit and equipment and stuff over. And the kit was lovely kit. And as we all know, um, when it comes to Olympic Games, kit is a, a big thing. It is a significant currency in the whole thing. And lots of people are looking for maybe more, let's say, than they they were either allocated in the first place or looking for a bit more for um, for other people, let's say. So my job was basically definitely to secure and not let anybody into the room which we'd identified it was actually quite a big kind of function room and it was well locked up and i mean we had a huge amount of of kit in that particular room so giles came back i'd had a conversation with sarah jane at one point when he was away and i says i think we can get giles here i think we can we can play a prank on him for want of a better word. Um, I think he told me I had one job and uh, let's see how far or how much it takes to basically to press the nuclear button. So anyway, Giles came back and uh, he said, how was things? And I said, well, we had a bit of a situation, Giles. Um, somebody who will remain nameless wanted to get into the kit facility and uh, and he said, what do you mean? And I said, yeah. And and this person was relatively important. So I said, well, I mean, they wanted to, they wanted to go in there and they wanted to pick up some pieces. And sure, who am I? What, what was I going to do? So he, he said to me, Sharon, you had one job here. Why did you do that? And I said, well, Giles, I mean, 
I, I can't, I couldn't help it really. So anyway, he said, right, we need to go down here. Where is SJ as well? So the whole three of us marched down to the holding um, room for the kit. And, and I, then I said to him, I said, no, I, I didn't want to tell you this, but I said, I think, I mean, I think what they took was actually quite significant because you see those double doors there that open out onto the area where the car parking is. They opened those up and they reversed a van to the doors and they loaded up quite a significant number of boxes. And SJ at this point, there was a whole load of big boxes down at the back. I could see her dipping down behind the boxes because um, she couldn't stop laughing. And I was struggling as well. And Giles went nuclear. I mean, this is where the bad language comes in. So you can just imagine what was said. You had one job, Sharon, you didn't do it. And I mean, he just went completely off the rails. And it was, how much do you think he took? they took? I don't know. Um, what about the trainers? Yeah, I think there's a lot of trainers. Oh my God. I mean, th this is a conversation that went on. So this, this went on for maybe 30, 40 seconds until I figured his blood pressure was so high at that point, I had to pull the plug and I started laughing. And I said, gotcha Giles, hook, line and sinker. So to this day, I still remember that little story with great fondness and it still makes me laugh. And yes, it still makes SJ laugh as well. So um, sometimes just, he said, like he did laugh at the end, didn't you, Giles? So um, listen, congratulations and good luck with the editing on this, Bruce. To close it out, I will leave you with the dulcet tones of the ever eloquent Professor Liam Moggan. Hello, Bruce. How are you? Listen, thank you very much for uh, giving me the opportunity to say a couple of about the great, the great man, Prof Professor Giles. I suppose if I was thinking back to the first time I saw him at NCTC and if first impressions matter or if you don't get a second chance to make those first impressions, I found he was tall. He knew stuff. I could see that very quickly. He used big words. He'd never used ATP like we would. He was able to give it the full whack anaerobic glycemic index. He used things and words and terms that I had no idea what they were about. And of course, us in the coaching section of NCTC, we only had simple words like plan, do, review, demonstrate and that kind of thing. But after a while, I could see that Giles worked hard. I could see that folk listened to him. I could see that he was very passionate about nearly everything that we were doing. He knew nothing about coaching and I kind of liked that and kind of hidden the shadows of it. But he had a huge passion and I could see how deeper as he was tall, but people did look up to him. And I could see really this young guy who was passionate, who was good to be around, uh, had a great sense of humility about him. And it didn't take too long to find out the guy, the guy was good crack, uh, very good crack. And he, he taught, he taught me a lot. And he reached out to what he once called the airy fairy coaching stuff. He began to reach out to that quite a lot. And I loved some of the early workshops where the audience kind of saw the two of us as equals, but I, I never saw it like that. And, and it wasn't like that. And I suppose one of the memories I have now is one workshop we did for a commercial sports company where we introduced ourselves to the manager as I being Giles and he being me, Liam, and that carried on for the day or two and the little childish pleasure that we got from it. But I suppose that in some way represents too how he talks about multidisciplinary. See the way he's taught me these whopping words and integrated and things becoming one. And the sports science and the coaching side through a huge amount of the efforts of Giles did become one. Uh, it began to offer through Giles's leadership a far more caring, I would say, 
but holistic uh, type of support to everybody who was there. Um, Giles was able to do that across a whole range of spheres. You know, he went to six different Olympic Games, six. He's at the World Cup rugby and not just as a spectator, he's an active role in all these. He's made a huge impact on the lives of race jockeys and the support structures that's offered and the rules and regulations around them and weight loss and weight that they have to carry and so forth. So when I think of Giles, I think of lots of things, the tallness, the big words, the friendship, the hard work, the multi-layered aspect to the guy. You know, he's uh, involved with the Athenry Fela hurling champions now. People involved in Gaelic games all their lives, they don't get something like that. But I suppose the biggest thing that endeared me towards Giles, Giles began to call me professor way before he was a professor. Oh my God, I mean, just call me for, call me professor and I'm yours. So, um, look, Giles is a friend. He's loyal. He's great to be around. I was honoured to be around the occasion and to feel the buzz at his professorial lecture. He looked great, the sod. Everybody there adored him. Um, he said some great words about many people, including myself. And coming back to Ashburn that evening, it was just that great feeling uh, that he gave. I read a piece by, about a singer that I know called Noel O'Grady over Christmas. And I think I'm getting the words right now, but Noel was talking about artists. And he said, some artists make us feel good. Some artists make us feel great. Other artists make us feel. And he was talking about musicians and singers and so forth. And I think that's what Giles does. He makes us feel good. He makes us feel that he is doing what he's supposed to do in serving us and helping us and encouraging us. And for a tall, big man, a Galway man now nearly, um, that's that's some, some journey he has traveled. I'm delighted he's been acknowledged in so many ways and um, I wish I wish the tall boy or the tall professor the very, very best of luck.